0: While Steve gets set up, I'll, I'll say a little bit, in case you weren't here last week, about the format of the class. This um, We're doing uh, each week this summer, we're going to do a different video from the Q conference. It's kind of like a TED Talk conference uh, for you know, with, for the Kingdom of God. Uh, so the, there, there won't necessarily be, there's a few times uh, in the summer where we've got two or three weeks in a row that build on each other. But there's going to be plenty that don't, which is great for you all because it means if you go on vacation, uh, which a lot of us do in the summer, you can come back and not miss a thing. So uh, we've got a different guest speaker on the video each week. Um, so this week, um, Steve will introduce the one. Uh, but it, it is after the guest speaker, which is about a 15-minute video. It's all discussion-based. So this class is what we make it. So please, um, please feel free to, to join in. That's, that's the lifeblood of the class.
1: well this was a telling your age please. well that's not hard to do anymore <laughs> uh, just to let you know who I am uh, we all argue on the church staff who has the greatest job in the world well mine is the greatest I have been supported by Otter Creek for 34 years most of that time in Guatemala uh, we came back in 2001, and I have been the missions minister, or I should say, foreign missions minister uh, here at Otter Creek. I split my time between here at Otter Creek and Lipscomb, where I get to teach missions courses and uh, undergraduates in Bible. So I have a lot of fun uh, doing two jobs and going back and forth between those. Uh, I actually chose this topic because I really love the original title, which was How the Local Church Impacts the Global Church. And this one really has very little to do with that. So as you can see, it's actually a different title. So I'm not sure how they kind of got this mixed up. I honestly think the sermon Josh did this morning probably has more to say about what uh, I thought it was going to be. Uh, than this one. But it does kind of tie into it. So we'll watch this and then uh, talk about it.
2: Is, is seeing the church really engage the city? And so today what I want to talk about is how God uses the city to save the church, which probably sounds a little weird at first. But um, there was a man by the name of Leslie Nubigan who wrote a book called The Gospel in Pluralist Society. And he was an amazing missiologist. And he talked about the fact that the gospel uh, isn't necessarily owned by the church, but it stands between church and culture. And the gospel goes into a culture, and it contextualizes itself to that culture. So every culture has windows of redemption, where the gospel preaches good news. And every culture has windows of offense, right? Right? opposition where the gospel is uh, is an affront and out of that culture comes this new community called the church and the church then is sent back into the culture but one of the key missing points I think for all of us is that we forget that the only way we're supposed to go back into the culture is through the gospel and so when you think about your city The city is made up of many sectors. These sectors as well as, I would include family, and then all the hurting people that are in need. And oftentimes, I think as as pastors or leaders, we think of those people, not as people who are building the city, but they're people that are separate from the city, which is a lie. These are people who are not just using the city, but actually they're creating the city in these different sectors. So rather than thinking about all of your people as simply your church or your congregation, you have to see them simultaneously as the city, which means that they are the church. They're the church that is sent into the city. And so this morning I want to talk about four ways that God uses the city to save the church. The first one is coffee, because if you have (laughs) canned coffee in a styrofoam cup, it's bad. Um, I'm just kidding. The first one is truth. Uh, <laughs> See, some of you still have really bad cough in your churches. you you got to change that. But culture's questions continue to help us to discover what we believe and what the best way to talk about this is. When we remove ourselves from culture, we begin to reduce uh, what the gospel is. We, we come up with oversimplistic answers for really complicated questions. And God's genius of throwing us into a mission where we're completely dependent on Him and the gospel forces us to say, How will we hold to our truth? How will we be able to speak that truth into the culture in a way that they understand it? And those questions that the culture is asking and the issues that culture faces. Keep us from oversimplifying the gospel, making it a pithy statement that you subscribe to rather than uh, God's revelation that is shaping and redeeming and changing the city. The city forces us to think and act theologically about the gospel so that we keep ourselves from sinning. Now that might sound kind of bizarre, but the truth is uh, to retreat from culture and to Define the gospel with insider language that the culture can't understand is sin. It's, it's what Jesus confronted the Pharisees over. At the same time, to thrust ourselves in the culture, to remove the offense of the cross, is to be consumed by the culture and synchronize the culture, and that's sin as well. And the gospel becomes this tightrope that we stand on between church and culture realizing that we have to speak this truth and some of it is good news right away but then the other piece the exclusivity of christ gender sexuality all of these issues that we have to try to figure out how is the biblical revelation going to be spoken in a way that's loving and yet still truthful the other way is identity Uh, To recognize that the people in our congregations are not resources to be used, but rather these are people who are, are building the city. So we don't have a relationship with the city. That's not how we think about it. We recognize that we are the city. We have a seat at the table as much as anybody else does, and the people within our pews are participating in the life of the city, which forces us Uh, to understand that we're not sitting here deciding if we're for the city or against the city but we're just declaring that we are the city and so we need to create the city shape the city for the glory of christ for the display of the kingdom the church then is sent and and one of the greatest sort of theological themes that gets missed by uh very conservative theological churches is that the church is the sent people of God. As the Father sends the Son, and the Father and Son send the Spirit, then the Father and Son and Spirit send the church into the world. And so we begin to realize we have to think that they're coming Sunday and they're worshiping, but they're being sent into these different sectors of society to announce the reign of God. which means that we need to be incredibly humble people, right? Um, for For the kingdom to be displayed in the city, the church must believe and act as one body, which is really difficult because last time I checked, we came up with lots of different versions of what we are supposed to believe. And so it forces us to say, what do we actually believe? What do we... Really, really. What can we all unite around? How can we be God's, Jesus' answer to that prayer? Father, may they be one as we are one. If we're thinking competitively about the church next door and how we can beat the attendance wars or whatever, it totally destroys us. But when we look at the city and say 1.9 million people with massive needs and we're forced into this place to announce the reign of god to think act and, and announce the gospel Then the question becomes we can't do this together every church needs to win and we need to all help each other get there and so we find this common ground that we say we believe and we aren't we aren't reducing our convictions but we're standing together in a very humble posture so let me give you two portraits of the church. One is that the church exists for itself. We, we don't think this, perhaps, uh, intentionally, but we begin to act like this. So the church exists for itself, and pastors exist to build the church. And therefore, the disciples in the congregation, they simply exist as resources for church building. Now, I know that nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, that's what I do. But the truth is, that is how we often act. One of the problems uh, of, that, that I've seen that comes out of Q is that as pastors, we sit here and we listen to these amazing stories of what people are doing in social entrepreneurship. You're like, I want to do that. I want to be that guy. Uh, because I'm a pastor. And that's not cool at all. Right. But the truth is, your job is to find those people and to disciple them and unleash them and cheer them on and realize that God's going to use them in some really unique and beautiful ways to announce the kingdom. So what if we rethought the paradigm? What if we came to the conviction that the church exists for the world and therefore pastors exist to equip disciples and disciples exist to announce the reign of Christ in the public square. It's a very different picture. But one of the things that we begin to dream about and to imagine then is how rather than looking at that businessman and saying, well, this would be a great person to be on the building committee, right? To say, "What, what can I? how can I come alongside him to help form his soul so that he would actually think about business through a kingdom lens? That he would see different bottom lines than just economic. That he might restructure how he hires, how he sets salary structures, what he does with giving people time off to participate in the common good. There's all kinds of things that would make that type of business a city on a hill. So we have to rethink how we understand the kingdom. The kingdom definitely shows up In congregational worship on Sunday mornings. But it also ultimately is supposed to be breaking in all over the city, in every sector, in every corner. And the way it breaks in is through unleashed disciples who are sold out for Jesus Christ. Which means that by sending us into the city, what Christ is doing is calling us back into the gospel. And he's calling us back into the gospel so that Christ can be the one that builds his church. And we then get to display the kingdom and announce the reign of God. One of the major issues that we will have to lay down in order to fulfill this this dream is power. How the church understands power, how it understands its influence. We have to look at our power, whether that's uh, nickels and noses, buildings, influence, whatever it would be, and we have to lay that down at the foot of the cross and realize that Christ has given us power to use as He used power, which was to serve with. Right? This all-powerful God takes on weak humanity, goes to the cross in death, and then overcomes, and then He speaks us speaks to us, sending us into the world to say, do that. Do that. And, and so what I'm talking about here is very specific. Who you hire, what you do with your budget, right? How many staff do you have that are focused on the city and deploying people into the city? Right? How much money are you willing to pony up and give away to city initiatives, right? And all of a sudden, the room gets really quiet because it's like, as long as we're spreading bark dust, that's pretty cool, right? But then when it comes to actually laying down those power structures, the problem is the church is very good at looking at how the world would misuse power. But we're not very good at looking at ourselves and realize that as well as systemic evil exists within the world, it also exists within the church. And it's very easy for us to begin to build our own kingdoms and slap Christ's name on it and go, "Yay! look what we did for Jesus. And the whole time, what the ethos is, is competition. And it's being against the people. It's creating the people who are right and declaring to the world that they're wrong. And it's using God as a source of power to complete an agenda that really may not have anything to do with the kingdom. And so this conviction that that Newbegin brings to us that I think is so biblical and streamed through the New Testament is a conviction that we are sent back into the gospel to recognize our own propensities for evil. And we stand in solidarity with all of the other systemic issues to say we need the cross as much as anybody else. And so that humility that's willing to lay down power, that's willing to say we will serve without any expectation that this will promote my organization, right? Because believe it or not, people have picked up on the bait and switch. They really have, like really? And and we start training them for this in high school. Like come to the pizza feed and end with an altar call, and they're like, wow, I thought you were having pizza, but... <laughs> and, the church, and the church does this, right? We use our influence, and, and many times we're, we're using it power not to serve, but to promote our own thing, and that's not to say that we don't preach the gospel, and we don't do evangelism, and we do all those things. We have every right to tell our story. In the public sphere, and everything that we do, at Imago, as anybody else has the right to tell their story. And so we negotiate, you know, those sticky issues. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize that the grace of God has, has really been to save us from ourselves. To save us from building our own thing. And to call us to say, we're not going to build the church, but we're going to dream about how can we be the church. And how can we be the church that displays the kingdom in the world? And so the gift of your context, the gift of your city, the gift of your country, the gift of your culture, is really a gift that God gives you that will force you as he sends you into that mission back to your needs, back to the gospel, to say, Lord, we cannot do this. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it as one church. We can't do it through oversimplifying anything. And we don't have all the answers. So we need discernment. And discernment can only come from your spirit. And so God help us as you send us. And the beautiful thing is you have these moments like last night as we sat here, as Ken sat here and uh, Kevin and and the commissioner and and, uh, the mayor. And you're sitting there just, I don't know how you heard it, but for us that's 11 years of showing up in four years where they wouldn't return our call, right? And we're just going to keep showing up and realize, okay, maybe we'll never get to that table, but we're going to keep serving, we're going to keep loving, because we are continually being sent. And then that moment happens, and you're like, wow, God, that was cool, that was a great idea, by the way, that was awesome. So our dream for you is that as you go back to your context, That you would begin to not look at your city as the thing that you're trying to fix, but realizing that perhaps that context that God has thrown you into is the very thing that will begin to save your church. That's it.
1: So I think uh, one way that uh, we can kind of expand this a little bit is thinking of, when he talks about the city, to think about the world. Uh, I, I have a few things here that I think are really fascinating. Uh, again, the, one of the questions for me is, is what culture are we talking about? The culture of the city. Uh, the last time I checked, which I think was 2015. There are a hundred and ten languages spoken in the schools of Davidson County. And so I think that expands our whole idea of what the city looks like in its own right. And then the question becomes, how do we fit into that? Um, so maybe I'll start us off with this question. Did it go off to
0: Turn it off. Oh. I know oh you yes, had PowerPoints.
1: That's
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll try this again. <laughs> he did say he was a teacher. That's right. <laughs> I control the remote. <laughs> uh,
1: let's see here for our current slide. There we go. Yeah. From McKinley's perspective, how does the local church contribute to the global church? It's not coming up yet. It sounds to me a little bit like he's saying that the opportunity, the opportunity to be in the church is presented by the city.
2: Okay. Um,
1: he didn't use those words, but, and you've got to be continually open that that opportunity, I I really I, as a leader of uh, the Otter Creek Church, I'm really intimidated by the unleashing of disciples
3: into the world. That's that's something that I don't think we think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I would also just his statement about disciples being a resource for the building to realize that we are that the the church is actually the world and to view it that way uh, almost to say have a believe the best in the world so that it's easier to see what you have in common with that person rather than what you have different from that person Mm -hmm. and so I think that that's how the Mm -hmm. local church globally as you encounter someone who may not speak your language, find out what you have in common.
1: And that can be your 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 seed that goes into sharing your story. Okay, so uh, what I hear you saying is, is there has to be the connection there. And that connection can't be just when we invite people to church. It has to be as we live within the Nashville community specifically. Just a follow-up, then, how does the questions that our culture brings to the theological table help us discover the way, what we believe and what are the best ways we can be faithful witness as followers of Jesus? Do we learn from culture?
3: You can't have a church within a vacuum, I think is what I heard from that, that community, if we, if our only community is within these walls, then we're missing the point. Okay. And it's not, I, I kind of see it as, you know, base camp, we're coming here Sundays or whenever to learn from each other to learn from our, our different experiences. But the church, the work of the church is outside of the walls. And that's, I think that's what you're asking is, how do we connect to the, the culture around us when they come to us with, you know, whether it's political, general, you know, individual questions or major issues within our society, how do we respond to that?
1: Yeah, One of my favorite things uh, as I study through, especially scripture, uh, you know, Abraham is educated by Pharaoh. He goes in, he compromet- compromises his life, he compromises his faith, and it's Pharaoh who chastises him. How many times has the church had to go through that, uh, that process of the fact that the people of culture sometimes speak truth to the church that the church is having a hard time hearing in the first place because we're so much a part of the culture and the compromise that we have. Uh, I can't help but think about um, civil rights and, and how culture was sometimes way ahead Even though it's interesting to me with Martin Luther King, influenced by the work of Jesus and the story of Moses and Israel and those kinds of things, that then brings it to a conviction that has to confront the church, that brings about changes within us. Um, So there's that historical context, but then there's that current context that we have to live in. And so many times it's interesting how we can become blind because we're living within our own little shell or our own little bubble instead of actually communicating with society. And it takes society's yelling at us sometimes for us to hear it.
3: Um. Hey, Steve, we got a comment. Okay, yeah. One I was reminded of when you asked that question is. Few, I don't know, four, five, six years ago, um, I realized how little I knew about Islam, and so I spent a couple of years reading the Quran, meeting with Muslims, and so forth, traveling and so forth. And one of the things that was fascinating to me was how much uh, that allowed me, I think, to understand my own faith better. And when I when I would you know, when I read Jesus over alongside Muhammad, I realized the similarities, and I realized the differences. And when I talk to good Muslims and and hear what they're up to, I see things I can celebrate and things that ways in which I'm different. Our our basic convictions are different. And so that sort of encounter that we do now have in Nashville, that opportunity, I think can really be a a terribly enriching experience to help us appreciate better really who we are and what what we're about.
1: Timothy Tennant, who's a well-known missiologist, uh, actually wrote a book about Christianity at the Round Table. And it was really fascinating to me about what he said at the beginning of that, which is, if we're going to talk with world religions, we have to speak to their strengths and not to their weaknesses. Because speaking to their weaknesses brings about division and separation. If we speak to their truths then it creates this atmosphere in which dialogue can actually take place and we can learn something because it's not a one-sided pathway.
3: What's a, miss- <coughs> what, uh, what's a, missiologist? <laughs> a missiologist? A
1: missiologist is somebody who studies uh, missions okay. and looks I historically, see. theologically, and uh, culturally at the church. Sorry about that. Again, <laughs> church language. There was another one here. Yeah, here. I was just going to say
3: long time Because it was just, I had to completely start over, and we didn't really talk about purity. We really had to go way back to the basis.
1: basis. Yeah, it's interesting.
3: That's you know how those questions come up. Yeah. I
4: I think the 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 whole pizza thing struck me. I think as Christians there's plenty of organizations out there are fulfilling the needs of the homeless or whatever but it's not tied to Christ so I think it's challenging, the challenge for Christians is how do we do what we need to do but get that message out as well um, yeah. you know do we just be examples and then they'll be curious hey what causes you to do this and then that plants the seeds I mean that's something to be mindful of as well I think as Christians we're not the only ones out there
1: Fulfilling needs. Yeah. Kevin Colvet's not here, so I'm going to pick on him just a little bit as an example. I thought one of the things that's really been interesting to me, of course, uh, since I have a passion for Guatemala and have been working there for a few years, is uh, getting people involved. John Lee's one of those, Carrie uh, Patterson, and some others have been involved in this, but one of the things that was fascinating to me is I got Kevin Colvin involved, and he is a water engineer, and so we started doing water projects in Guatemala. And, uh, and now, uh, through Living Water, that's, it's not just Guatemala, it's been expanded to a lot of different places. But one of the really fascinating things to me was Kevin being a water engineer that works for the city of Nashville, Uh, one of the natural things that happens in dialogues and conversations while he's working is, well where did you go? What did you do? And he starts sharing the idea of building or or securing water sources for the Mayans and rural communities and things because of the disease and the, the problems that they have. What's been fascinating to me is to hear Kevin tell the stories about engineers who are working with companies who have nothing to do with church in fact would probably never step into the church in Brentwood but those engineers then start doing projects in Guatemala and there comes that opportunity of the question of why do we do this how is that motivation there Um, So it's fascinating to me, even those organizations who are not necessarily Christian, it's fascinating to me how if we work in common for the common good, for the advancement of people, uh, it creates this drive then to think about why we do these things. And the dialogues happen there. One of my favorite uh, cartoons, this came from... uh, the passion of Jesus. (laughs) You know, one of the things that's really been fascinating to me is people are really fascinated by Jesus just as they're fascinated by a lot of people who make sacrifices that actually call them uh, and the way that maybe their perspective on life is is driving them to, to, or motivates them uh, so, what does this cartoon, how does, how does this speak to maybe the function of the church?
0: Steve, I'll jump in. It, this reminds me of his, the tension that he talked about between um, two, two, um, two sins that we have to navigate between. One is Becoming uh, a church of insiders, where our language and our symbols and um, what we do is is so uh, it's so specialized and uh, closed and Byzantine that you know outsiders don't get it. They're, the uninitiated wouldn't get it, and and that looks like that you know kind of I don't know neo-Gothic church there. It's 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 got all the it's got all these like features of the uh, a, a churchy uh, architecture and, and it's empty right um, and then sort of the, the opposite um, sin the, the other end of that spectrum is becoming so um, becoming so assimilated into the culture that we avoid the scandal of the cross that we, uh, we so water down the message that it's lost and we're not preaching the gospel anymore I, I, I'm not suggesting that the passion of the Christ is that other end because I think they did a pretty good job um, showing the scandal of the cross in that movie, but um, but it's obviously appealing to people when you don't, you know, when you speak in a language that people can understand. And so I think that's the great opportunity for the 110 languages being spoken now in Nashville's public schools is it's it it's a constant opportunity for us to. Um, get rid of some of the baggage that we've carried for a long time that really isn't at the heart of the gospel that might be keeping people away uh, or pushing people away um, or making them feel like outsiders or uninitiated so that's what that (coughs) says to me I'd like like to hear other people maybe react to that tension in other ways is that that a real thing you all think is there and how do you see it
4: Uh, examples of it I see it is, it's the difference in I've heard somebody call it churchianity versus Christianity. And you know there's there's really a pull at times to uh, to have this concept of let's get them in, let's dunk them, let's, you know, let's make a part of our church, you know, let's increase those numbers, let's get a bigger building, let's you know, and everything starts to be about what our church looks like, not what Christ looks like. And you know, and we end up having these ulterior motives. I think the, the example of the pizza is perfect. We have these ulterior motives when we talk to somebody or when we do a mission. And it's not about Christ's love being spread to somebody just through our actions. But it's about, okay, now how do I get them in? How do I, now how do I get them to, to that point where they want me to baptize them? You know? And it's, yes, that should be in the back of our mind, but that shouldn't be our motive our motive should be love, not necessarily getting them into the church. So maybe what you're saying is,
1: is the passion of Christ is something that they can only see when we live it out within the city.
4: Absolutely. With, you know, it's Without not the idea of there being a hook. Yeah. It's
1: it's not the the worship service and the excitement and trying to get them here. It's actually trying to live in a way that there's something that's beautiful and attractive about how we are in relationship with other people. Absolutely. Yeah, Sandy. I don't know what the
5: ultimate consequences were citywide, but. Two, two of our elders will always have my great appreciation for uh, facing, what is this one? Facing the culture head on and sacrificing a lot on behalf of the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, on behalf of Christ. Uh, one of them uh, is Greg Hensley who was a leading pharmaceutical salesman across the country. And he was being pushed to sell something to Vanderbilt Hospital that they really didn't need. And he refused. He refused to do it. It was unethical, he thought. Because it was unethical, he refused to do what the pharmaceutical company was asking him to do. And he lost his job. And he was out of a job for a long time. Another one is Ken Switzer, who was in a law firm, realized unethical things were going on, and he spoke out. He was in the newspapers about it. Lost his job, was out of his job for a long time. Um, They will forever have my appreciation for standing, I mean, that was, to me, self-sacrifice. They knew what they were losing. I can't explain all that Preston Ship has done. He's not an elder yet, although I would probably keep putting his name down. Uh, But Preston decided that he was prosecuting people who had other... There was more to them than he thought of good and bad, that he needed to be helping the people he was prosecuting. And he gave up being a prosecuting attorney, which meant sacrificing a lot. Uh, he had a family, small children, and he he changed his profession because he thought helping those people that he was at that time prosecuting was was what Christ would want him to do. He's, his life has changed, and I don't know if the pharmaceutical company is any better because, but I know somebody in that place recognized a good man, maybe in the pharmaceutical situation. I know that some the whole town saw what Ken Switzer did, and I'm sure they, they were amazed to see a young man do that. And I'm sure that all kinds of young people that Preston is helping in prison work and in other work and in the classroom are benefiting from his decision to, to be sacrificial. It's, it's what Jesus did. He went against the ruling authorities, the powers over him. Uh, He confronted the Pharisees. Isn't that he didn't love them, as you taught me? (laughs) He did love them, but he refused to be the kind of person that, that they were. He was trying to show a better way. Blessed
1: are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're out of time. One thing I'd like to leave with you that I think he does a good job on is the idea of vocation um, it, he talks about John chapter 17 and the idea of, as, as I have been sent I also send you I don't think God views vocation as oh it's Josh who's the preaching minister of this church is more important than anybody else each one of us has a vocation that God has given us and empowered us to work within And then the real question, I think, and the exciting question for each one of us is, how do we work that out that glorifies the kingdom of God? And I think that's the the great question that we have for the church. We come here to have our batteries charged, but the work and the witness is out there, and we are part of the city. We're not separated from it in that sense. There's always that tension between being the prophetic voice and the other tension is is the fact that we can compromise ourselves to the point where there is no message. Uh, and I think that's the real uh, lesson that uh, we heard today. Thank you for coming. Uh, God bless you, and we'll see you next week.